I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab in investigating the effects of grief on the brain and the body. She earned a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Arizona in 2004 and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in psychoneuroimmunology at the UCLA Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. Following a faculty appointment at UCLA, she returned to the University of Arizona in 2012. Her latest book is The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss, a book uh, we will discuss today. Mary Frances, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, when I first uh, saw your book, I thought it was interesting, but I was like, I'm not sure if it fits into the theme of the podcast. And then I realized, actually, it's incredibly relevant to medicine's purpose. Doctors see people experiencing grief all the time, and they experience it themselves, too. So in a physician survey from 2012, 61% of respondents found their most memorable patient death to be emotionally distressing. And likewise, 26% reported recent personal bereavement due to a patient death. And then in an Australian study of healthcare workers, researchers found that crying in hospitals was reported by 76% of nurses, 57% of physicians, and 31% of medical students. And the primary reason for participants on the job crying was identification and bonding with the suffering of dying patients and their families. In other words, grief is indelibly imprinted on the profession. Tell us a bit about what prompted you to write this book. You know, this is all so very true. Grief is very universal, but you have to think about the fact that we have a whole profession who are dealing with death and dying every day in some way or other. I work with a lot of training of medical residents, and so I'm very aware and really feel a lot of compassion for just the enormous task that they take on and often without a whole lot of training around grief. So, you know, this was part of my motivation for writing the book was feeling like I am steeped day to day in these research studies that I'm doing and I'm reading about that my colleagues are doing. And we really actually know a lot about grief and grieving from a very empirical perspective. And yet it's very clear to me that that information is not getting out right? It's not really been incorporated into our training programs for medicine or psychology. And it, you know, it also just isn't getting into the hands of the people who could apply it to their personal lives and, and really understand their own experience through, through this lens. Yeah. And so kind of a meta question, I guess, to kick us off, what is grief? And you also talk about complicated grief. Uh, how do they sort of differ and, and what are their manifestations? Well, grief is really just the natural response to loss. It's becoming aware of the fact that someone or something that is very important to you is no longer there. When I talk about grief, I talk a lot about the death of a loved one, a really close person, whether that's a spouse or a child, could be a sibling, a parent, a grandparent. Um, but anyone really who's close to you could be, you know, the person who raised you or uh, could be a best friend. And this is often how we think about grief because it is that experience of loss. 
And it evolved over time because our loved ones are as important to our survival as food and water, right? I mean, we don't think about it that way, but if we didn't have a caregiver, we wouldn't make it on this planet. And that bond is so important and remains important as we're adults. So grief is really this feeling, this wave people often describe it as, this intense experience of missing this person who is so important and and isn't here now. I'd like to make a distinction between grief and grieving. I think that can be very helpful for people. It certainly was helpful for me as, as I was trying to figure out how to study it. While grief is that wave, that moment, grieving is really the way that grief changes over time without ever going away, right? So the first you know, hundred times you feel that wave of grief, you, you may think, I- I'm not even going to get through this moment. I, this is just unbearable. And then the 101st time, it's just awful, but it may be more familiar, right? And so you have a different way of relating to grief. It may come less often, less intensely, but it can be six decades after you've lost someone. And if you become aware, you know, you, you open a drawer and you, you find the birthday card from your mom, this happened to me. And, you know, you see that handwriting. And in that moment, you're just dissolved into tears. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your grieving. It doesn't mean that you haven't changed your understanding over time of what it is to to live without this person around. But in that moment, you feel grief. And that's okay. Right? Yeah. And how do you define complicated grief? And is it kind of is it pathological in any way, or is it more of kind of a natural response? This has been very much in uh, people's thinking at the moment in our country because the DSM just included prolonged grief disorder as one of its diagnostic categories. Complicated grief is a slightly older term that we were using to describe the same phenomena. So even though they've settled on the word prolonged grief disorder, There's a history now of about 20 years of research where we often were using the term complicated grief. I like the term complicated grief, and this is why. I think of complications. So I just said, you know, that grief is this natural response to loss. Grieving changes typically over time. And I think of this like, think if you break a bone, right? So you're not actually doing anything to heal that bone, right? The osteoclasts are doing that all on their own. <laughs> Although you might be giving it some support, right? You might give it a cast or, or use crutches, but sometimes there are complications. So you get an infection in the area or you get a second break to the bone. And in those cases, it's very helpful to have intervention in order to get back on that natural healing trajectory. So I think this is actually a great analogy for grieving. When someone has prolonged grief disorder, first, we don't start even thinking about that diagnosis until a year after the death. And in those situations, maybe one in 10 or even one in 20 bereaved people, we find meet these particular criteria that basically mean that they're not really able to function very well in their life. They're not getting dinner on the table or 
they're not able to do this interview, right, without tearing up and, and crying in the middle of it, right? They can't get through a day of work. And in those situations, we've discovered there is targeted psychotherapy that can help people to learn new skills, have new experiences, that get at these complications, not in order to take their grief away. It's not really possible, right? There's always going to be this experience of loss. But to get them back on what we think of as the natural trajectory of healing, and we've seen people who've had prolonged grief disorder for 10 years, and then they go through this you know, 16-week uh, targeted psychotherapy, and, and they're better in the sense that they have found ways to restore meaningful activities in their lives. They're able to connect with their living loved ones in a way they haven't been able to for a decade. And it's not that they don't have grief. It's that they're also able to, yeah, to restore a meaningful life at the same time. Mm. And what is done to kind of help people make that switch and suddenly, you know, I mean, maybe it's not suddenly, but over the course of a few months, they're able to kind of adapt. What's done there? Yeah. We think of the stressors that bereaved people have to deal with as coming in sort of two flavors. We call this the dual process model of coping with bereavement, usually just the dual process model. And it's a much more contemporary theory of grieving than, say, the old and now disproven five stages of grief. The dual process model focuses us on there are some stressors that are loss-related. A person who is grieving has to deal with these overwhelming feelings I just described to you, intrusive thoughts, difficulty concentrating. They have to deal with uh, not wanting to you know, connect with other people because they just feel really lost feeling maybe very angry or self-blame around the death. So those are what we think of as sort of, that's typically what we think of as grief is these loss stressors. But the dual process model points out that bereaved people also have to deal with restoration stressors. This is the restoring a meaningful life part. So they have to deal with, you know, how am I going to cook an egg? I've never cooked an egg. You know, <laughs> that, that was what, that was what my partner always did or, how do I do the taxes? You know, she's been doing the taxes for all these years, and now I have to figure what. Why did she leave? You know, but other things as well, like what is retirement supposed to look like, or how am I going to co-parent my child? Uh, sorry, how am I going to parent my child when my co-parent has died? Right, they were supposed to be the one that had those conversations with our son. Those sorts of restoration stressors are equally important. How do I learn to be in the world with the absence of this person and, and with all the knowledge I have now about mortality and the fragility of life? The dual process model points out that oscillation or this flexibly going back and forth between both of these types of stressors and just everyday life, that's the sign of mental health. And people often get stuck in one or the other. So they're stuck there constantly thinking about the deceased or about uh, what happened during the death, or they're, they're only wanting to, um, they're stuck in the restoration piece. They can't bear to think about 
the loved one. They don't want any photos. They avoid, you know, they may drive out of their way to avoid the hospital where the person died, those sorts of things. And so the psychotherapy uses a, a variety of techniques to help people to deal with both of these. On the one hand, it focuses on what some of your listeners might recognize as exposure. So having the bereaved person talk about what happened when the death occurred or when the death really sort of became real for the bereaved person and recording that and then allowing them to listen to it day after day. And this type of exposure enables someone to build skills about how do I move into that wave of grief and out of it again, right? That flexibility is what is sort of being capitalized on there. And on the flip side, there's a there's a some clear evidence from the research that meaningful activities have very often stopped for these people. They think, well, I'm not going to enjoy going out to dinner without, you know, my my older brother. So I'm just not going to go out to dinner anymore. And so it's very targeted around what activities did you used to find meaningful? What activities might you find meaningful that we could try as an experiment? And then helping them to have the courage to try out these activities to stop avoiding often situations and conversations and people that remind them of the loved one and giving them the support to see that sometimes it takes building the habit first and then the enjoyment comes along later, right? So you go out for dinner once, twice, and the third time you think, oh, that was really good. I've never had that dish before, right? And then suddenly you think, oh, okay, I did enjoy that, you know, which is most of us find ways, you know, 19 out of 20 of us bereaved people find ways to do this and and learn those skills, but some of us just don't and need extra attention and, and sort of intervention to figure out how to move on and 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 with the absence of that person. And why do some people experience this prolonged or complicated grief and and most do not? Is there something genetic? Is there something uh, interpersonal? How can we sort of explain this? Well, that is just the $60,000 question, isn't it? (laughs) No, I say that, but there is, of course, some research. I feel like we're still in the infancy of really understanding, but I can answer it at a couple of different levels. One is that um, we know that social support is vitally important when a bereaved person is trying to adjust, and not everyone has the social support that they need. Often older adults become very isolated and experience a lot of loneliness. Um, They already have smaller social circles, for example, and then the death, say, of a spouse can mean that you've really reduced that circle to zero or one sort of contact. So social support, um, not having enough social support certainly has been demonstrated as a predictor for more severe and prolonged grieving. Other things include, you know, we sometimes forget that bereavement is a health disparity, right? So we know that mortality rates happen at different levels in different communities, but we forget that means that now there are more survivors There are survivors who have lost more people in their lives and lost them younger, right? So for example, even in the COVID-19 pandemic, um, Black children in the United States were twice as likely to lose a caregiver, and American Indian children were four times as likely to lose a caregiver, right? And so the financial change, the 
social capital change that happens when we lose a loved one means that our situation can be dramatically different than before a parent died or a sibling died or a um, or a grandparent died, right? So we know that this change in that type of situation often doesn't allow us enough support to sort of figure out how to who we are now and how to how to move forward. Um, there are a few other things. I particularly, of course, am very interested in the brain and and how the brain may help or hinder us uh, in this process. Because it turns out that bond we create with someone is actually in the brain, right? We encode that relationship when we fall in love with our spouse or we fall in love with our child. And from animal research, we know that, for example, voles who bond for life, they have pair mates. We know that parts of their brain are actually changed. You know, the proteins are folded differently after after they have that one and only in their life. And there are some voles who are genetically different from other voles. Uh, So mountain voles don't pair for life and prairie voles do. And we know that it is some of the, say, oxytocin receptor density in that part of the brain that seems to be related to this difference. We have nowhere near the specificity of that in humans yet, but we have seen in my own neuroimaging work that yearning for the deceased loved one, if people bring us a photo of the person who's died, that yearning is correlated with activity in exactly the same brain region in the human brain. So I wouldn't be surprised in years to come if we do discover that there are physiological or biological variations that make it harder or easier for us to adapt. And when you describe kind of getting through bereavement or getting over prolonged, I guess, grief, it almost sounds to me like something on the spectrum of depression in a way. Do you think that's accurate or how how do you feel that they kind of differ from each other? This has been the source of very careful research, some pretty elegant studies. I think one of the things that motivated the initial group of grief researchers and clinicians, so psychologists and psychiatrists, to try and come up with a diagnostic criteria was that they could see that grief and depression, even severe grief and depression, were different. And that that wasn't reflected in our in our healthcare system. So that clinicians usually did not know that. Often it's your general practitioner, right, that, that a bereaved person goes to and, and they don't get that kind of specialty training. So they wanted to really show that these are different. Now, this is maybe the easiest way to describe it. Grief is very much about the person who's died. So yearning, which is sort of the hallmark symptom of prolonged grief disorder, yearning is not a symptom of depression, right? Depression is much more global. So depression is, yes, you want that loved one to be back, And you're also really worried about what's going to happen in the future. And you're also really feeling guilty about how you're parenting. And you're also, right, it's this expansive sort of contagious set of feelings and thoughts that encompass really everything in your life. Grief is very focused on the person who's died, even if that focus is really interfering with our our living. So I think the last piece of evidence that was very convincing to me as a neuroscientist was some elegant randomized clinical trial work done where they were um, testing this psychotherapy 
for prolonged grief disorder again. And in one arm of the trial, they also gave antidepressants, citalopram, um, which is your standard sort of SSRI. And they discovered that, of course, of course, you can have comorbid depression and prolonged grief disorder, just like you can have depression and anxiety. Antidepressants did not help the grief symptoms. Antidepressants didn't help the yearning, for example. It did help if the person also had depressive symptoms. It helped those symptoms. But I think this was some sort of beginning clear evidence for me that even the neurobiology of depression and prolonged grief disorder may be different um, if that treatment is not as effective um, when you're using um, using uh, sort of antidepressants uh, for something they weren't intended for. You know, there's a passage in in your chapter on believing in magical thoughts where you describe how chimpanzee mothers continue to carry and even groom their infants for a few days to even a couple of months after yeah. the infant dies, which I was just blown away by. And eventually they leave the body as they realize that the infant has died. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. Uh, tell us about why this is and why this adjustment might take so long and what maybe some human correlates to it are. Boy, the way we uh, deal with death and dying is so culturally bound and our expressions of grief vary a lot across history and across cultures, even though grief is both universal among humans, but we also see it in the um, highly intelligent, very social mammals like chimps, like elephants. Um, and so uh, the way that we think about that is for many, you know, thousands of years, the person who is bereaved has cared for the body of the person who has died, who is really very present during the death. And then in the days after the death, caring, preparing the body for whatever ritual is appropriate for the culture, burial or, um, or, or whatever's appropriate. We have not really maintained that in, in current, at least Western, um, or most of the subcultures of Western um, of life, where it's, you know, the mortician deals with that, or the coroner deals with that, or the hospital deals with that. The reason I think that this may be even important to mention is that I believe that the brain of a grieving person is dealing with two streams of information that are conflicting. On the one hand, you do have memories, right? You may have been at the bedside as the person was was very ill. You may have been there when they died or gotten that phone call, right, to, to tell you. So on the one hand, you know that the person has died. You're not delusional. On the other hand, when we form that attachment bond that we were talking about, when you uh, find your one and only, part of the encoding of that relationship is this idea that they will always be there for you and you will always be there for them. There is an everlasting quality that is encoded in that relationship. And the reason this is important is if you think about our day-to-day -day life, it's very important that those attachment bonds, those tethers remain in place when we can't see the other person, right? There's no way you could kiss your kids and let them go off to school every day and you know kiss your partner and, and let them go off to work if you didn't deeply believe that you would all be back together again at the end of the day. And so you don't need to verify that by them being visually present. You believe 
that they are out there. And that's very effective when someone is alive. Problem is, when someone dies, which is a very unusual event, thankfully, it means the brain doesn't know how to use its solution to this problem. Its solution is, your loved one isn't here, go get them. Or make enough you know, noise that they come back to you. Which doesn't work as a solution when the person has died. So on the one hand, you have, I know this person is dying. And on the other hand, you have, I believe that they're out there. And this leads to, I think, things people will recognize, like, I just feel like they're going to walk back through the door again, you know? And I think that's because the brain is genuinely dealing with these two mutually exclusive streams of information. uh, And it takes a long time for the brain to update, to really understand no, I'm not going to wake up next to this person again. Do you think there's some overlap between grief over a person who's dying or or grief of a person who's passed away and grief over a a friendship, a long-lasting friendship that's ended or a long-lasting relationship that's ended? Is, Is the response very similar clinically or biologically in your mind? I think so with some caveats. So while I think that, you know, this was an, uh, this neurobiological system of attachment and therefore grief uh, has evolved for these very important reasons with these, you know, two pounds of brain we carry around, I think it's not hard for us to feel that other types of losses mimic that same experience and and i don't mean mimic in a fake way i mean that they feel like the death of a loved one and so the absence of a person whether that's divorce or whether that's um even empty nest right your kids go away to college and they don't live there with you anymore those experiences feel very similar then to that type of grief the caveat is that we know that there are often additional layers that come with it so for example in divorce Some very good research suggests that the feelings of grief, you know, the self-reported symptoms of grief are actually very similar. However, the feeling of being a failure is much higher in divorce than with something like bereavement. Um, This depends, of course, on, you know, who initiated the process and how it went and so forth. So there's there's other aspects, but it's sort of a death and also, you know. Um, that we often see. In the book, you discuss the classic grief model as proposed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which I think everyone is familiar familiar with. That's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And you mentioned this a bit earlier, but she described these in, in terminally ill patients, and then they were subsequently, I guess, applied to those experiencing grief in the wake of bereavement. But you state that this model really misses the mark. Why do you think that this model is incorrect? And you talked a little bit about what re- replaces it. Yeah, the I have such enormous respect for Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. You know, she was a psychiatrist working at a time when there were not a lot of women in psychiatry. And her model was published in 1969 in her book on death and dying. And she really transformed the world of palliative care. However, she was doing what good scientists do at the beginning, right? She was describing, and that those were very accurate descriptions. People talked about their anger, they talked about their depression, and their acceptance. These 
stages then she described as sort of a linear process. And now it's been used as sort of a prescription, not just a description, right? As though you have to go through all of them, you have to go through them in this order. And once you get to anger, you're never going to go back to denial and, and that sort of thing. We know from much larger studies, much longer studies now, where we're looking at the same person at multiple time points, um, work by Holland and Niemeyer, for example, that the stages are not linear and you don't even have to experience all of them, right? A lot of people don't feel anger and then they don't know if they've done it right, <laughs> right? Maybe I'm not done because I haven't felt anger yet. And that can be really damaging for a person to believe there's something wrong with the way they've grieved for a loved one. Rather, Holland and Niemeyer find that over time, acceptance tends to increase and yearning tends to decrease. So there is change over time, but that it's not linear. We know empirically from research that grief goes up around the holidays. Grief goes up around the anniversary of the death. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your grieving just because on this day or in this week or uh, that, that you're feeling more grief, that you're more aware of the absence. It doesn't mean that in the big picture, there haven't been processes of learning and adjustment. So I think we think more about this dual process model now. We take a sort of um, zoomed out look at how people are doing rather than just sort of uh, in this moment, which which emotion are they experiencing? You define rumination as reflection and brooding where reflection is an enga engagement in kind of problem solving in order to alleviate one's feelings. Um, whereas brooding maybe reflects a kind of more passive state. You think about your mood even when you try to stop thinking about it. Um, and grief-related ruminations are really frequent. Why do we ruminate? What purpose does it have? Is it a way of getting over um, your loved one? Is it part of the grieving process? How do you think about it? There's been some really elegant uh, empirical and lab-based research done on rumination in grief um, that I'll talk about. I, I, but just to be fair, I, you know, there's no dipstick we can put in and say, you know, this is, you have, you have the correct level of rumination, you know, unfortunately. Uh, but here's what we've really discovered is that these intrusive thoughts, these ruminative thoughts that just keep coming back are very common early in grief. And they come in a few different flavors. Uh, one of them is, is my grief normal? To which the answer is almost always yes. Um, but people worry, am I grieving too much? Am I not grieving enough? You know, another flavor is the, what I like to call the would have, should have, could have. So this is the what if I could have gotten them to the hospital sooner? Or the doctor should have ordered that other test. Or if only they would have known not to have that last beer, you know? There's an infinite number of those questions that we could ask. But if you think about it, all of them really end with, and then my loved one lived, right? And the trouble is that, of course, they didn't live. and so. You have this situation where the, the reality is really painful. So it is quite understandable that people sort of run through their heads all these other ways. If only I could have changed things. But if we spend a lot of time in that headspace, in those virtual realities, 
we're actually missing out on the present moment, right? We're actually missing out on the things that are happening in the here and now, the the grandchildren that are laughing in the park and the, you know, barista who smiles at you and all those things that are a part of here and now that has both painful aspects, but also wonderful aspects. And so the trouble with rumination isn't that it's a bad thing to think about what's happened. Obviously, I've just said it's important to think about, you know, how your loved one died and feel like you could move in and out of that. The trouble is when rumination kind of takes over so that it prevents you from doing other things in your life. I had a woman recently who told me she had um, experienced the death of of a newborn baby, her newborn infant uh, in the NICU. And she said that for a long time, she was attending these grief support groups and that it was very helpful initially, largely around that, am I normal kind of feeling. But that there there came a point when she realized, I'm doing this again and again and again, and now it's it's not helpful to me anymore. I need to have space for other types of thoughts, for other types of activities. And she found that while she actually continues to do volunteer work for this organization, she doesn't spend time in the support group talking as much about her experience over and over so like I say, there's no, I, I can't give you a litmus test for what's the right amount of it. Certainly research is done in this area, but we know that it can be, it can turn into a complication that kind of derails people. You know, the, one of the other things you kind of mentioned this throughout the book are these different, I guess, cultural ways of dealing with death, uh, which I f- always find very fascinating because they are, they are, in some ways they're very similar, in some ways they're variable. You know, like I think about a wake versus uh, the Jewish process of sitting shiva. Um, yeah. What do you see as sort of the common threads through all of these, and what do you see are the profound differences? I think that a helpful distinction I often make is that the experience of grief isn't the same as the expression of grief, and so that we know that across all these cultures, people experience grief, but their expression can look very, very different, just the way you say. I think that when we talk about rituals, one of the reasons that rituals are so important to human beings is we kind of mark time and we mark this transition in our social roles, right? So before the ceremony, you're a child and now you're an adult, right? Or Before the ceremony, you are single people, and now you are a married couple. And I think there's a way in which the rituals around dying and grief help us to sort of establish, maybe even because there's these two streams of information that conflict, these rituals help us to establish this person lived, and now this person is no longer on this earthly plane. You won't interact with them again in the same way. And you get people together often, right, who who share this view. We all are uh, acknowledging, we're witnessing that a life was led and it is no longer being led. And I think that ritual can be extremely important for a lot of reasons. Um, it also, for people who have been a part of a culture with a long history, it connects you to humanity, Right. You think about all the other people who have said these prayers or have lit this candle. 
um, who have worn black armbands, whatever it is. And those people faced staggering loss and they also went on. And so although I cannot imagine going on at this moment, I am somehow connected to a humanity that has found a way to do this. I think that's very comforting for a lot of people. And our need to connect with other people in the face of loss is such a remarkable motivation. I've been doing some research recently on grief during the pandemic, people who experienced the death of a loved one during the pandemic, both to COVID and for non-COVID reasons. And, you know, we've seen this just revolutionary thing called Zoom funerals, right? Like whoever thought that was going to be a thing. And I think it really speaks to our need to come together, even when we can't come together in the same physical space because of viral transmission, we still have a need and find a way to come together. It's not going to feel the same. It's certainly not going to feel like, you know, the things that we used to do at funerals. But I've had people describe to me, you know, the Zoom funeral was actually smaller than a funeral would have been in my family. And it was kind of more intimate. Like we got to really see each other's faces and we shared stories in a way that we might not have done at a more traditional funeral. So I think what people need out of those rituals can be different uh, and, and that each of us perhaps can find what it is that we think would be helpful and find a way to create that in whatever time we're living in. Is there ultimately a objectively healthy way to deal with all of this? Or do you think that psychologically it just varies from person to person depending on what he or she needs? I think the answer is yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, people think of me as a grief expert, but of course I'm an expert on grief in aggregate, right? I look for the patterns of similarity across people or across groups of people. Each individual, though, is an expert on their own grief, their own life, their own relationship. If we think of the fact that grief is really sort of a byproduct of love, right? Well, think about how many different ways you love different people in your life. I mean, even if you have two children, your love for them feels slightly different. And so I think maybe it shouldn't totally surprise us that grief is going to feel different in each type of relationship, in each time of type of loss that we encounter. Um, I think you asked if there are healthy ways to grieve and unhealthy ways to grieve. I think one of the most difficult things is many bereaved people get the idea there's the big book of grief rules and they're not following them, you know, <laughs> whether it's our friends or family who are often incredibly well-meaning. They have a lot of advice for us often about what we should be doing. <laughs> that really often doesn't match our internal experience. Our internal experience is hard enough as it is when we're grieving, right? It's a bunch of different feelings you weren't expecting. The volume on everything gets turned up. Uh, the future feels incomprehensible. And I think it is better to try to honor the experience that you're having to try and connect with other people who are genuinely able to listen to you without always jumping in with advice. And often those are people who've experienced profound grief themselves. And so if you don't know anyone like that, it can be useful 
to talk in a support group or with a pastor or someone, you know, your favorite author, uh, to talk with a person who has um, had this sort of deep experience that you're having. And so I think of it more in the big picture. I don't expect people's lives to look the same before and after they experience the death of a loved one. People say, you know, my whole contact list has changed. People were there for me that I wasn't expecting. And then people I really thought would get it just didn't. So there's a lot of change that can come with bereavement. I think following what your mind and your body are trying to do is useful. And if you are able to have moments of the day where you get lost in a project at work or you, you know, have a regular exercise uh, pattern, right, where you go to the gym, as long as you're able to do those aspects of your life eventually, then to also have times in the day when, you know, you have to leave your desk and go dissolve into tears in the bathroom, well, that's okay, you know? Right. Can you tell us a bit about, I guess a bit more about the research that you're currently doing now and and kind of what you're thinking about looking into or what interests you? Oh, I have so many interests. <laughs> Some recent findings that I am very excited about come from a graduate student of mine, a former graduate student of mine, now a postdoc um, named Saren Seeley. And she wanted to know what it looked like when people weren't necessarily asked to think specifically about their loved one in the scanner. So what, what is the brain doing when it's just at rest, right? There's no specific requirement placed on them. This is often a time when we would expect to see people ruminate, right? This is like you get into bed at night and there come the thoughts, or you're sitting at a stoplight and there come the thoughts. So we had people come in and um, do a neuroimaging scan, about six minutes of just lying in the scanner. Whatever comes to your mind is, is just fine. She then looked at these networks of brain regions that are activated at the same time. I think of this, if you think of like a picture of the United, a map of the United States, you can think of all the ways that cities are connected by plane travel, right? That's one set of connections. And then you think of a different map that's all the ways that cities are connected by freeways, right? So we have these ways that different parts of our brain are connected to each other. And you can actually see through statistical processing and analysis that the brain goes through these different uh, states, we might call them, where different networks are activated. She found in this study that there were, in general, across the whole group of, of people in the study, there were four states that people went through, these particular network activations. What's fascinating was the group of people who were having more difficulty with their grief, who had more symptoms of prolonged grief disorder, they had a longer dwell time, I think is a wonderful word, they spent more time in one particular network state than the other three, more so than the people who were adjusting more resiliently. Now, we don't know yet exactly what that means. We don't know why this particular set of networks was activated, for example. But what's interesting is we think about how people get stuck in grief. They get stuck in these repeated thoughts or feelings 
and they feel that they're not making progress in the way that they're restoring their lives. And I think it's interesting to think that there may be brain network activation patterns that are mirroring that experience psychologically we're having. So again, it's still early days, but I find this to be just so fascinating. How is the brain doing this? How is it encoding our relationships and then the solving these problems when when those close loved ones die? Very interesting. Mary Frances, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a great conversation. Appreciate it. Ah, so good to talk to you, Erin. And thank you for bringing this conversation to people. Absolutely. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.